0: I invite you this morning to open up your Bibles and turn to the book of Psalms. Psalm 126 will be our scripture reading. One of the songs of ascents as uh, the people of God would travel to Jerusalem, travel up uh, the mountain to Jerusalem for different uh, religious gatherings and, uh, and, and festivals, going to the temple, uh, they would uh, sing some of these songs on the way. So that's why they're called a song of ascents. Uh, these psalms were written for that very purpose. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the, in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out, uh, who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy bringing his sheaves with him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, now as we turn our attention to what you have said uh, through the psalmist here in Psalm 126, Lord, we ask for your help, uh, that your, 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 your spirit would come. Give us insight, give us understanding. Open up our ears that we may hear and know your word. I pray, Lord, that this time and this message uh, would not just be um, a time where people are hearing the words of a man, a sinful man, but that they are seeing your word opened up. That you would give a blessing to this time for all those here. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, my wife and I have been uh, back in Iowa uh, the past two weekends. Um, we had a, a family gathering last weekend and kind of a, another type of uh, family gathering uh, this weekend. And um, it reminded us of, of one particular time about uh, 10 years ago when uh, Greta and I spent a day in Sioux Falls uh, with my sisters and my one brother-in-law at the time. Uh, we planned to go to, to, to Sioux Falls together to enjoy some recreational activities and to just uh, be together since the only time uh, we really ever saw each other were at family gatherings when there was other people you know, in the family gathered around, namely children. Um, and so we wanted to kind of get, get together uh, uh, in a different context uh, away from that. So we, we traveled together from Uh, my folks' place uh, where we had left our children and we went up to Sioux Falls uh, and uh, uh, rode uh, go-karts, played mini-golf, ate at some good restaurants. It was uh, the original incredible day of fun that we had together in Sioux Falls. We laughed, uh, we told stories, uh, we talked with each other more than we had the previous uh, few years altogether, and uh, there was much laughter and joy uh, on that day. And so now, uh, since the only times that we have been with them have once again been at family gatherings, we are starting to plan uh, to do something like that again. Uh, We remember the joy of that day, and we want to experience it again. We want to do it again. And you can probably think of a great time that you have had in the past where you experienced great joy and laughter when you were with the people you loved and it seemed that all was right with the world. And when you think of it now, you you just want to experience something like that again you long to once again be a part of something so delightful that others will even take note and recognize your joy. And that's very similar to what we see here in Psalm 126. Although what's being recalled here in verses 1 through 3 was not just a fun day of joy and laughter, but it was a mighty work of God's salvation. It was remembering a time when God graciously restored his people. This reminds us, who read this, that, that if God restored his people before, well, then he can surely do it again. So when we read the Bible, we actually see that the redemption or the restoration of the people of God is the great theme of all of Scripture. God's people have been in need of redemption since the fall into sin of our first parents in the Garden of Eden. It was actually immediately following that rebellion and fall into sin that God first promised that he would redeem his people through the seed of the woman, and God performed a great work of redemption and restoration when he delivered his people from captivity in Egypt through many great and awesome works. And, 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 and that was definitely a deliverance that the nations took notice of and glorified God when they heard of it. And there's also the work of, of restoration that God did for his people when they were captives in Babylon, exiles in Babylon for for 70 years. And many many believe that it is that restoration that this psalmist is referring to in these verses here in Psalm 126. We see in those restorations that God desires to restore his people, to redeem his people. He does great things for them and the Bible tells us he will do great things for us as we trust him, as we look to him for restoration. God is our Redeemer. God is our Deliverer. If we desire to see all of God's people redeemed from slavery to sin and restored to true fellowship with Him and with one another, well then we must look to and depend upon God to bring that all about. So this psalm encourages us to pray for that to pray for that, and to persevere in the work of sowing the seed of God's Word within a world that is lost and dying in their sin and rebellion. And we are convinced he can do it. And so we cry with the psalmist here, O oh Lord, do it again. Restore us again. So our main theme from, from these uh, six verses from Psalm 126 is the restoration of all of God's people is the great joy and chief concern for those who faithfully labor in the Lord's fields. Now, uh, this psalm divides up into three sections with verse four being the transition verse which reveals the desire of the heart of the psalmist, the the desire of the psalmist for, for the Lord to do it again, do this again. So let's look at verses one through three here first. And uh, the, the uh, heading I put over that is God's gracious work of redemption fills his people with joy and the world with amazement. Verses one through three again. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Now, many believe verse 1 is is referring to, uh, again, that first return of the uh, exiles from Babylon. It would have been about 538 B.C., and they interpreted uh, the context of the psalm to be at a time after the first return of, of, the, of the exiles, but before one of the other two uh, restorations of God's people from Chaldea. The Bible speaks of, of three different Occasions when the exiles returned to the land of Israel from Babylon. And that is definitely possible. Uh, But but others don't see such a specific reference to that time period here. Therefore, they argue the the restoration mentioned here could refer to one of the uh, 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 different times in the history of God's people when God did a great work of redemption and restoration. Definitely could be the return of the Babylonian captives. But maybe it was referring to the Lord's deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt or one of his deliverances uh, of his people from the Philistines or, or other uh, enemies surrounding Israel. But for God's people today, we can read this, you and I can read this and think of other great and joyful times of restoration for God's people. I mean, think of, think of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a joyful day that must have been for God's people, for the disciples. I mean, their mouths had to be filled with laughter and their tongues with shouts of joy for the Lord that day. Or the day of of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit empowered the church to proclaim the gospel and and through their proclamation of the gospel, 3,000 souls were redeemed and restored in Jerusalem on that day. I mean, and, and, and since then, brothers and sisters, the gospel has made its way all over this world. Everywhere the gospel has gone, lives have been transformed, and God's people have been redeemed and restored to fellowship with Him. Now, note here that, that, that the psalmist is not re- reflecting back on a moment in his own life where the Lord has done something you know, great personally for him, his focus here in this psalm is on the community of God's people. Notice all the, of the plural pronouns here. Look at verse 1. Uh, we were like those who dreamed. Then verse 2. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue was shouts of joy. In quoting the nations who observed how the Lord restored his people, it says, The Lord has done great things for them. And then, verse 3, this almost agrees with the proclamation of the nations. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad, or the NIVs, we are filled with joy. So if we are not careful, we will find ourselves and our prayers exclusively focused on our own desires, our own needs, our own personal experiences. And the culture that we are all swimming in here encourages this. And of course, it's our own selfish tendency as well. When it comes to finding joy, we often only ever rejoice and find joy in the good things that happen to us or those within our own households. And so we, we struggle, right? We struggle to rejoice at the success of others. Now consider what, what you pray for regularly, what you pray for consistently. Are your prayers filled with requests for things that you need, things, things that, that, that you desire for, for the good or for the healing of individuals just close to you? Now, it's most definitely not a sin to pray for your own personal needs or, or for those close to you, but how often, how often in our prayers are we praying for, for our church as a whole? How often are we praying that, that our church body, that is all of us together, would be faithful to God's word, that we would collectively shine as lights within this crooked generation? Do we pray for the spiritual growth of our church body and and, and that the Lord would empower our witness and outreach to our community? Do we ever pray for the churches of our Midwest district or the churches that make up the Evangelical Free Church of America? That the Lord would help us to be a faithful witness in the midst of this nation that, that is growing more and more wicked? When we hear of of other churches growing in numbers, do we rejoice with them? When we hear of good things happening to other believers, do we rejoice with them? Do we have joy? More and more we need to realize we are a community. We are all God's people. When God is blessing others, he's blessing us. So God's, God's great works are geared towards saving and restoring a people for himself. A people. Not just a few individuals, but a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. That's the church. He has done great things for us. So let us also pray for the restoration and the good of not just ourselves, but, but of all God's people. Now secondly, verse 4 God's people pray for the redemption of many others from bondage. So uh, verse 4, this transition verse here, our our, our second section, uh, God's people pray for the redemption of many others from bondage. It says, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Uh, So here is this this transition. The, The mood now shifts a bit from this joyous reflection on God's great work of restoration to now crying out to God for others to be restored as well. And, and we've given this image of, of streams filling a dry, arid desert. That's the, the, the Negev here. The Negev was the dry and arid area in the south of Judea. This, this gives a clue that at the time of the writing of this, the psalmist confesses that the condition of God's people felt that they were in this dry desert time kind of the same same condition of a dry desert a place where there seemed to be no hope of life unless of course unless the rains came and the rains filled up the wadis or or, or the dry river beds with water and the water then would flow and the water would, 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 would bring life to the dry ground and this kind of transformation was was known to happen in, in the Negev. Uh, we've seen similar events happen even, even this year in Nebraska, uh, where, where, where the land goes without rain for several weeks. Our lawns turn brown and dry. The vegetation in our gardens doesn't make any progress. Everything seems to go dormant, and then all of a sudden, we get an inch of rain. And overnight, everything greens up again. Our crops and gardens improve dramatically. Life has been restored once again, and we rejoice. And how did that all come about? God sent rain. God sent rain. God sent revival. God restored life. God did it. And the psalmist longs, he longs for this restoration to happen again. And so what does he do? He prays and he pleads with God to do it again. He knows only God can do it. He knows his people are completely dependent upon the Lord and his grace. If new life is to come, if restoration and redemption uh, is to happen for the people. He knows it will have to be a great work of God's grace, and so he prays. He asks the Lord to do it again. In history of the church, when we study uh, the times of when revival has come upon the church, we often see prayer, the prayer of God's people, at the beginning. During, during a very dry time spiritually in our nation, In the years leading up to the Civil War, our nation experienced a revival that spread far and wide throughout our young nation. It was was a time of restoration of many of God's people to saving faith and fellowship with God. Uh, A minister of a local church in uh, lower Manhattan, uh, New York City, uh, Jeremiah Lanfear, he had a simple idea. Since since their church was located so close to the financial district of the city, it was just a five-minute walk uh, from Wall Street, his, his idea, he would invite businessmen to his church for a prayer meeting over the lunch hour. And this began in September 1857. Of course, as things like this usually do, it began slow. For his first meeting... No one showed up for the first 30 minutes. It was just Pastor Jeremiah there all by himself for that half hour. And let me tell you, a lot of thoughts can run through a pastor's mind in 30 minutes when no one shows up. But finally, a handful of men walked in the door and they prayed. Uh, The next week, 20 men came to pray over the lunch hour. After a few weeks, more and more came until they needed a bigger room. Word got out about the prayer meetings and other churches began to open their doors in the city for their own prayer meetings, which for the most part were led by laymen rather than by pastors. And then word spread to other cities, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Chicago, even even onto college campuses throughout the country, reports we're being spread around of people coming to faith in Christ, of churches filling up, not, not just for the prayer meetings, but, but for Sunday mornings as well. There was even one report from a news correspondent in Iowa, in Iowa, which was published in a New England newspaper, which read like this, Just as the winds of heaven speak the strongest over the broad, open prairies, so for some of the prairies the wind of the Spirit has spoken with an irresistible power. And the sinner in the humblest isolated cabin has rejoiced in new life. And back in New York, that businessman's prayer meeting started by Jeremiah Lanphier, uh, with just six men showing up the first day, a half an hour late, it had grown to over 10,000 in eight months' time by the spring of, of 1858. Meaning every day, every lunch hour to pray. The sermons of uh, Charles Spurgeon were being printed and published and sold by the hundreds of thousands in New York City and across the country. In the book publishing uh, industry, sales were way down on most books, with the exception of religious books. They were being sold in record numbers in these years. One pastor in New York City reported in April of 1858 that the pastors at his presbytery were reporting at their meetings a great increase of attention in all their churches with meetings of great size, as free from irreverence as any you ever saw. People were serious about coming to hear the word of God and loving one another. If we want to see believers grow in their faith and courage to obey, if we want to see our children become faithful disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, if we desire to see our neighbors and friends and family members be born again by the Spirit of God and be restored to Him, delivered out of captivity to sin or drugs or from being within a church where the gospel is not preached, then we ought to follow the example of our psalmist here in verse 4. Pray, cry out to God, to restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the, in the Negeb, Send your spirit to enlighten those in darkness. Open the eyes of hearts that have been closed off from hearing your word. Revivals will begin not because we have decided to start some new program or have a special meeting. They will only come through God working through our prayers. Richard Baxter, a very wise pastor from the 17th century in England said, you shall find this to be God's usual course, not to give his children the taste of his delights till they begin to perspire in seeking after them. So let us follow the instruction of our Lord in the gospels and pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And verses 5 and 6 here then focus on our, our role in the work of the harvest and for souls uh, uh, for the kingdom. Verses 5 and 6 Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. So for our, our last section here, verses 5 and 6, We will see the ultimate redemption of God's people, but only if we faithfully work for it through our sorrow. So the psalmist firmly believes that the restoration or redemption of his people is something only God can bring about, and that's why he prays for God to do it. But he also realizes that God's people have a very important role to play, that God will work through his people in order to bring the harvest in. And he acknowledges that it can be a very difficult, but also rewarding work. In a culture like ours that's so familiar with farming, we know how difficult the work of sowing and reaping can be. Tears are often a part of the experience. Tears of sorrow, and more often than not, tears of frustration. There are tears when the farmer writes the check to pay for the seed that's not even in the ground yet. There are tears when, when, when the ground is too wet to plant, and, yet, uh, and, and you have to get the crop in late. There are tears when you have breakdowns in your equipment, which hold up progress. And there are more tears when you have to write more checks to get the equipment repaired. And once the crop has, has finally all been sown, planting is done, and the crop is looking wonderful as it emerges out of the ground, well, then thunderstorms bring hail and rain, and you have hail outs and washouts, and more tears fall. You may have heard of uh, St. Augustine, uh, the sixth century bishop of Hippo. He preached many sermons on the Psalms, and they're all still being published today. Um, He still is one of the most influential uh, voices, figures in all of church history. And in his sermon on Psalm 126, he provides this vivid image of the farmer sowing in tears. He says, when the farmer goes out with a plow carrying seed, is not the wind sometimes biting and does not sometimes the rain deter him? He looks to the sky, sees it overcast, shivers with cold, but nevertheless, goes out and sows, for he fears, lest while he is watching the foul weather and waiting for sunshine, the time may pass and he may not have anything to reap. Oftentimes when when we sow, sow the seed of the gospel, the sun is not shining. Gospel work is like this. It can mean sleepless nights, it involves enduring mockery. It calls for financial sacrifice. It requires much hard work with very little to show for it. And it prompts rejection from hard-hearted people. There will be many tears in our sowing of the gospel. But as these verses also make clear, in the end, the tears will all be Those who sow in tears shall reap With shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. When I went off to seminary almost 20 years ago, I was asked uh, by a good friend of mine who was uh, the program director at Hidden Acres Christian Center. It's the Evangelical Free Church's Bible Camp in Iowa. And I had served there as a counselor while I was in college. And he asked me if I'd be willing to return there to, to serve as the camp pastor uh, for the upcoming summer. Uh, the camp pastor was uh, the shepherd over the summer staff at the camp, which at that time was around 70 uh, uh, kids, mostly high school or college-age students. And uh, when, I, when I first uh, worked there, when I was in college, uh, as a senior counselor about seven years prior to that, I was very nervous And really didn't have a clue as to what I was doing. Staff training and and then the the first few weeks of camp were were pretty rough for me. Um, I just felt overwhelmed with my responsibilities and everything that that was was going on. And so um, a main prayer of mine, a repetitive prayer of mine those days was, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. But the Lord got me through that summer. And so now here I was. Seven years later, back at the same camp for staff training, and, and, and as I saw these young high school and college students show up, I couldn't help but, but remember how nervous and out of place I had felt when I first showed up as a college student to be a senior counselor. But a few of the faces looked familiar to me. And, and sure enough, three of, of the guys who looked familiar to me came up to me, the one who was going to be a a senior counselor, the other two were gonna be working in other areas of the camp that summer and 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 they said Clint great to see you Clint great to see you Clint and I looked at them and yeah and they realized I don't remember who they are <laughs> and so they they told me they told me their names you know and then I realized these are all boys in my cabin. These are all boys in my cabin seven years ago. They were in junior high and elementary school. They came to Hidden Acres as campers, and and I was their counselor. That that, that summer, that summer that, that I felt like I was in over my head, that I didn't have a clue as to what I was doing, trying to do the work of a sower in the Lord's harvest, and now here they were, and they loved the Lord, and they had committed themselves to serving him. They committed themselves to being sowers in the Lord's harvest. And that was a a quiet moment of great joy for me. So brothers and sisters, if we commit ourselves to pray and then do the work of faithful laborers in the Lord's harvest, whatever role the Lord would have you play in that work, he promises it will be worth it. The work will be difficult, yes. There there will be tears of sorrow and frustration. Some seeds will only grow if they are watered by our tears. But in the end, there will be a day of joy. The sores will reap with shouts of joy, it says. Remember that it was that way for our Savior. Jesus, who who shed tears and sweat droplets of blood in the garden of Gethsemane as he accomplished our salvation for us. God's word says in Hebrews, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider him. Trust him, put your hope in him, and press on in the work. Sow the seed of the gospel, pray for the restoration of God's people. For only in doing so will we experience the great joy of our Lord. As we think about that, as as, as that is on our hearts and minds, we are now going to be led to the table, to the Lord's table, So I'll invite our deacons who will be serving us this morning to come forward to serve. But but again, one of the things that we see emphasized in this psalm and one of the things emphasized here at the Lord's table is the community of God's people. We are all in this together. This is a meal that we are to enjoy together. Communion all together around the table, all together brought together by Christ. Christ died to save his people, to save the church, to save those who put their hope in him. God restored us. So as we take of the bread this morning, as we take of the cup, yes, praise God for how he saved you. Praise God for for Jesus Christ going to the cross, dying for your sins. Praise God for that. But also praise God for how he's done great things for us. He saved us. He restored us. As the the men stand up here, we will be uh, passing out the bread first. We invite you to take a piece of bread and hold on to that until all are served, and we'll partake of it together. I'm going to read the instructions here given to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup, after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then we're given a warning here. It says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and sweet of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. The body. The body refers here not to the physical body of Jesus that died on the cross, but the body of Jesus that is his body, the church. We are to discern the body. We are to discern that that Christ died for the church, that Christ died for us, that we are a part now of his body. So when we take of the bread and drink of the cup, we are to know and realize this is for, only for, those who are partakers in the body of Christ, who have put faith and trust in Jesus for their salvation and look to him and follow him by faith. That is who this meal is for. And if that's not who you are, well, then we're, we're warned here, just don't, don't partake of the bread or the cup. Just let it pass by because we need to discern, are we a part of the body? Are we a part of those who have been redeemed and restored by Jesus through his work of salvation on the cross? Let's pray. Father, now as we uh, will partake of the bread, we pray, Father, for your blessing upon us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who willingly laid down his life to restore his people through suffering and suffering and death, and his resurrection from the dead, who now lives and is seated at your right hand in heaven, ministering to the church. And Father, help us to honor and glorify him in this time. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.